0: It it was before we had televisions on walls, but it was like that. And it got right in, up close to me. And inside the, the picture frame, something like a video played of a car from the late 1950s, the kind with lots of chrome and fins on the back. There was a young man sitting on the radiator of it with the hood open. He had, he had not been in a collision, but for some reason he burst into flames on the engine of a car. Ooh and was
1: screaming as he died. My guest today is Father Nathan Castle, who's a Catholic priest of the Dominican Order and author of several books, including the one I'm reading now, which is Afterlife Interrupted, Helping Stuck Souls Crossover. Father Nathan, welcome, and thank you so much for coming on the show. Great to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. All right. It's fun, actually. I'm really enjoying reading your book, and uh, what i'd like to do is to start with your early years can you tell us a, a bit about what it was like growing up for you to the point where you decided to study to become a priest sure i'm i'm 67 years old i was born in 56 and
0: i'm from southeast texas right on the gulf coast my parents are catholic folk and my dad had two siblings two sisters who both became dominican nuns and first grade teachers Uh, My mom was a great woman. She And she was not only a a religious person, but you know how some people say they're spiritual, not religious. She was both. And she really uh, taught me how to move in the spirit, how to pray and talk to the saints and so on. So I was raised in Catholic faith that was not just about rules and regulations, but was really very spiritually grounding from the beginning. Uh, And part of that that comes into this conversation about the afterlife and souls and so on is that I was taught very early on that we were all kind of dual citizens of earth and heaven, that by our nature, we are God's children. We belong to God. We're here for a while on the earth. And after our deaths, we'll go home to our heavenly home. I was taught that when people die, we can pray for their good. We can help them advance or progress or something. And so I went to sleep most nights doing that. So I've been at this for (laughs) really sixty years, Uh, more than that.
1: That's a long time to be praying for people. It takes that's a lot of commitment. There's something you just said then about knowing that. No, it wasn't knowing. It was that we're dual citizens in here on Earth and also in heaven. It's one of those things that's even though I've not don't have direct experience of that. It's one of those. things that I've always felt like it was true. Some things you just have a, a inner knowing about them. Yes. And that's always been the basis for my fascination in in anything that's uh, not to do with our, our actual physical reality. I had a, a really good advantage, a nice head start, but
0: you know how, have you ever been around little kids that are fascinated with dinosaurs?
1: Oh, yes. I have a, a nephew who is autistic, who is very fascinated with dinosaurs. Yeah.
0: That, I'm much older than wherever the, however that got started. But in my childhood, I was fascinated with pirates. And I had a record player and a little book that had pictures. And I couldn't, even before I could read, I could play the records. The records lived inside little sleeves inside the book. And it was Peter Pan. And that involves pirates. And There was a picture of an island with a—you like live in the South (laughs) Pacific—an island with a palm tree, and it had a broken boat and a crab and a dotted line with an X. Well, of course, kids learn early on that a dotted line and an X on a map means that's where the treasure's buried. My mom taught me how to make the sign of the cross that Catholics do, where we touch our forehead, our heart, and shoulder to shoulder, making a cross over ourselves, and she said, she asked what letter does that make when i was still learning the alphabet she wanted me to say x and she said yes x marks the spot and right in the middle is your heart and that's all you have to do is knock on the door of your heart because the treasure's buried inside you god who created you placed himself inside you and if you want to talk to god you just make the sign of the cross you knock on the door and you talk you just say god i want to talk to you so i was doing that
1: really early on Interesting. And at what point, obviously growing up in a a Catholic family and surrounded by um, those of that faith, was that sort of what made you decide, okay, I'm going to become a, a priest or did that come later? It did come later. I
0: went off to college and studied sociology and my parents raised me with the idea that I could be anything I put my mind to. Did you grow up that way, Rod?
1: Uh, I did, yeah. Well, I grew up in the bush in Western Australia. We we were miles and miles from any other person and you had to become, so self-reliance and doing, being able to do, to put, put uh, to any challenge, to take on any challenge was something that we learned from a very early age, yes. My parents
0: didn't go to college. They were, they graduated high school in I think 1939, just on the cusp of the Second World War and They didn't have that advantage, but they made sure that their five children all had a college savings fund the first week of our lives. I think my dad went from the delivery room to the bank and created a college fund. So I just knew very early on that I would go to college and I would become something. And and they, they instilled in me that I could become just about anything that I wanted to be. But once I was in college, I had a spiritual experience at 18 right before leaving home to go off to college that uh, persuaded me, if I needed any persuading, that it was all real and that God was near me, loved me, was paying attention. And I I began to think this is the most important thing that I could think of spending my life on. But it was really after college, four years later, that I really had to get serious about the specifics of it. Would I stay Catholic? For one thing, I went to a Presbyterian college. Many of my friends were not Catholics. But anyway, I did decide to try out the Catholic system, and I ended up sticking around. It'll be 44 years next week that I joined the
1: Dominicans. Wow. The spiritual experience that you spoke of then, would you mind sharing a little bit more about that? Was that the one where you were with your friend and you were seated? At at the Grand
0: Yeah. No, it was even earlier than that. I had, I I, I grew up in a household of five kids. I was the middle. It was a busy household. And I, I grew up without feeling like I knew my dad at all, even though he was there, but he worked really hard. He, He worked on ships and was asleep in the daytime a lot. And anyway, he and I just didn't mesh somehow. And and my older brother and he had a a very strong bond. And I just felt that's just the way it was. There wasn't anything to be done about it. And right before going off to college, I was invited to go on a retreat at a Catholic college campus center near my home. I didn't want to go, but I was not exactly forced into it pretty close. A lot of my friends were going and I I capitulated and went on it. And I thought it would be about prayers, sacraments, commandments. I'd been Catholic all my life, so I figured as long as we stay to those things, I'll be fine. But when we got there, the people leading it said, the theme this weekend is, what do you think about your parents? I was really angry at my father and hadn't spoken to him in about five years other than pleasantries. I was not impolite. I just shut down. He hurt me, and I nursed a grudge. And I I just, you know, it's not that uncommon for teenagers and parents to have a difficult time communicating, and I just closed down inside. And then on this retreat, um, they asked us, and people started telling the truth, and I'd never seen that depth of sharing. Have you been in groups where people talk uninhibited about their personal lives?
1: Yeah, I actually have a very similar story to the one I think you're about to tell. Could... These
0: people who looked as just to be as ordinary as could be started talking once they knew that they had the full attention of others and compassionate listeners, and tell their stories. And so when it was my turn, I told my story about how my dad had hurt me. It was all over report cards. I had our Catholic school closed and I was going into the eighth grade, which it was an eight, K through eight school. And it just blew what It blew up. It went away. And I lost my whole community that I'd had since kindergarten. And I, was, I felt thrown into a school of 900 kids that were always saying the F-bomb. I thought they were talking about forks. And I didn't, forks are pointy, And I thought maybe they're talking about jabbing somebody with a fork. They're so angry and they talk about forking you. And I didn't know why they were so angry, but I came home. I I, uh, had my growth spurt later than most kids did. And I couldn't climb a rope to the top of a gym in a, a physical ed class. And I got a B in PE, A's in everything else. And I came home on report card day, and my dad just said, report card day in it? And I said, yes, sir, it is. And he said, let me see him. And he flipped past five A's to a B in PE, and all he said was, what happened in PE? And on the outside, I said, I couldn't climb a rope. And on the inside, I said, fork you. And I went to my room and sat on the edge of my bed and just shook and made the tears run on down the inside of my cheeks in Texas big boys don't cry. And so I just I was just furious and angry and wanted to run away and I decided, you know what I'll do? I I have to stay here 5 more years. I'll be so perfect they won't need to parent me. I had two brothers and two sisters and I thought they're very busy people. If I just never give them a reason to pay me any attention, that'll be my plan. And I pretty much did that and I had a little brother who obliged by needing a lot of parental attention. <laughs> It was working just fine until I went on this retreat like a month, two months before graduating and going off to college. This thing opened me up and I told the truth. And I said, I need to talk to my dad and I don't know how. I don't want to leave his home in what I felt was pretty much a once and for all uh, event. I knew that I'd only come home as a a visitor and that was true. So I just thought this was a life moment that needed to be done right. And I told these people that, and I said, I don't know how to do it, but I know I need to. Anyway, they brought in a priest and said, anybody want to go to confession? And I hadn't done that in years, but I thought I already did the hard part. All I have to do is repeat it and shorten it a bit. And the priest gave me absolution, and I went to communion at the mass that concluded this thing. And when I went to communion, I had my own private Pentecost. People call it different things kundalini awakening or whatever. I had all this energy that just flowed through me. I felt loved. I went to sit down and my, my body quaked and my hands heated up. I started crying real tears on the outside of my face. and I felt like I was starting life all over again. And it stayed with me. I went home and that was about a half an hour, 40 minute drive. And when I got home, I sat on the edge of my bed. I'm an 18 year old. I woke my dad up, which was one of the rules of the household that you are never to do. And I just thought, if I don't do it right now, I might lose my nerve. So I woke him up, which was difficult. And I outlined that in my first book. My first book is on the Wizard of Eyes. You might, I don't know if you can, it's dark over my shoulder, but it's on, there's a, a picture of it on the wall behind me. Yeah. Uh, and in that book, I described this event and that I woke him up and had a heart to heart with him and told him why I was so angry. And that I, and I asked if he knew I'd quit talking to him and he said, yeah, I just didn't know what to do about it which was extraordinary for him because he was a big manly man who never admitted defeat. And for him to say, I didn't know what to do about it, was really humble and truthful. And so we had a conversation that, and I told him I loved him, and actually all the way at the end of his life, he died of Parkinson's disease and was in dementia for probably two years at the end. And the week after his death, he told me, whatever you did that day, do more of it. It's really important.
1: He was referring to when you spoke to him when you were 18 years old.
0: Exactly. And he was, I was, I think I was 53 or four at the time of his death, but he said, whatever you did that day, do more of it. It's really important. So anyway, that just made me, all that happened in a Catholic religious setting. And so it just made me think there's more here than I have paid attention to. I'm going to, I'm going to pay more attention. And then, one thing led to another, and then four years later, I was entering a, a seminary.
1: Yeah. I, I grew up in a, a very uh, not a religious background, so I may ask questions that's, that seem obvious, but I, I'm eternally curious about all religious faiths, all kinds of people. So that's well, what I, that's what fire I away. That's why we're together. <laughs> I'm, I'll answer any question you ask me. How does the process work? So obviously going to college is part of that, getting a degree, and then to the uh, how, how did things evolve after that uh, I guess you would have joined the priesthood at some point in time and then w- when did something occur where you have, you've, this current work that you're doing with helping stuck souls when, when was the first inclination that something was going on there by that time
0: uh, I was ordained a Catholic priest when I was 29 and by that time I was uh, I've been in campus ministry most of my life especially after having that powerful experience at a Catholic campus center for college students that's what I've done. I'm at the University of Arizona in Tucson, and school is just starting next week. I don't. I'm not employed here, but I'm still living on a college campus. That's been my life. And I was at Arizona State University, which has about at, at the time it had about fifty thousand students. It was a very big. Wow. job. And I was on a retreat with a number of people in the in Arizona, where it's desert and it's hot, but if you go north, it's mountainous and it's it gets cooler as you go to the higher elevations. We were up at a we were on a retreat. And I was the, I was helping to give the retreat, but I was asleep on a Friday night when we had just gotten there. And in the middle of the night, I had a dream that was, I was playing golf with another priest and we were finishing the round. Do you know the phrase, the 19th hole? I, I have heard of it. Yes. Where you go to have It's, it's the bar. <laughs> it's where you go have drinks after a round of golf. Golf is 18 holes. The 19th is the bar. We went into the 19th hole and in the dream, we walked into a silent auction. Are you
1: familiar with those? Uh, yes, I am. Um, so you, you, there's, nobody's putting their hands up. It's all written down. Yeah, the, it's the, mostly you walk down.
0: around the room and there are objects lying on tables or whatever, and there's a sheet next to it, and, or you're having cocktails or something, and you walk around and you bid on objects. And if you're really interested in something, you have to keep going back and checking it because somebody else might be overbidding you. Right. Anyway, I was at this silent auction and I looked across the room and saw this ghastly piece of art on the wall. And to my partner, I said, look at that god-awful thing. Who would donate that to a charity? But it was so compelling. It was horrid, but I needed to see it more clearly. I walked toward it and it moved off the wall and began moving toward me. It, it was before we had televisions on walls, but it was like that. And it got right in, up close to me and inside the a picture frame something like a video played of a car from the late 1950s the kind with lots of chrome and fins on the back there was a young man sitting on the radiator of it with the hood open It he had not been in a collision but for some reason he burst into flames on the engine of a car Ooh. and was screaming as he died and i woke up i've had to at different times in my life, keep a pager on my nightstand if it was my turn to respond to an emergency call at a local hospital. You know, most priests have had to take their time doing that. And so if that happens, you might be in a sound sleep when the pager goes off and you suddenly have to rouse yourself and talk to the nurse's station and get the patient's name and the, the room number or whatever. It was like that. I felt like I was called in an emergency way to help a man who was burning to death. And so I woke up and said, hello, I'm Nathan. I will help you any way I can. Uh, I prayed for him right then. And I said in the morning, I'm going to uh, meet with a partner and we'll figure this out. So that's how it started. Uh, in the morning, there was a, uh, a woman on the, on this retreat who was, had been a prayer partner of mine and I knew her to have uncommon spiritual gifts. I said, could we get together at a break and pray about this and see what we might be able to do to help? She had what I call the gift of prophecy, of prophetic speech. It commonly gets called channeling in other circles. But in the Catholic Church, that word is radioactive. It upsets people. I don't use it. But she had that gift, and we prayed to St. Michael the Archangel and Holy Mary and surrounded ourselves with protection. And she said, whoever this man is, he really wants to talk to you. Is it okay if I let him? I said, yes, it is. So she allowed him to speak, and the first words he spoke were, who the hell does he think he is taking me just when my life was getting good? You're probably and familiar he, with that story because you told me you would started reading. The book. I,
1: one. I have, yeah. It, it wasn't clear who he was speaking through when I first read that. Uh, that He was speaking through your, uh, your through prayer partner, partner, is that right? Yeah,
0: speaking to me through the prayer partner. I also have that gift, but it wasn't manifesting hardly at all 27 years ago. Now it's common, but back, I knew that I had it because it had happened once before when I was at the grand Canyon after graduating college, but it, it lay dormant for a long time. But anyway, that's what happened. And we learned that he had died in 1960 when I was four years old. And we said, what is it that, why are you here? What can we do for you? What is it you want? And he said, to my wife, she's an old woman. Now I've been watching her since I died. Now she's an old woman. In her 60s, she's dying of cancer, and I want to greet her when she passes, but I can't the way I am. I said, oh, okay, now at least we have our marching orders. (laughs) And I said, what have you been doing for the last 40 years? And he said, nothing much, just watching my wife. I said, "That sounds like now you want to be in a big hurry to be ready to greet her, so I'm probably going to have to push you. People don't normally like being pushed, so if I push too hard, you can push back and tell me to stop. But just know that I'm only trying to serve you. And we'll figure this out. That was this assignment: how to help a man who had been—he was—he was so mad at the world. He was mad at God because he was taught that the reason that people die is because God takes them.
1: Heard that? Yeah, I think it, depending on people's beliefs, as they grew up, I often hear that that term used. Yeah. Well, and for him, that made God a a
0: body snatcher, and it made him like a tyrant. Nobody asked me to have my. <laughs> I didn't ask to be burned to death in a fire. Who the hell does he think he is? So he entered the afterlife angry and desiring to isolate, except he wanted to be able to watch his wife, and he kept it. He kept tabs on her over the years for about 40 years. So we we had to break the problem down into component parts, and we did that, and it's described in detail in, in the first afterlife book. Um, but we were able to help him get what he wanted in the end. He just... I I had to tell him, I think the problem is that you're just a caveman. Every time you talk about her, you sound like you own the exclusive rights to her. She's loved by other people besides you. I think if you just calm down and take your place among a few other people and be a gentleman about it, I think you'll be fine. And that's the way it turned out. He was able to greet her in the end. And then finally, when it was time to say goodbye, I said, Ray, it sounds like you got what what you came looking for. But I said, now that you're an afterlife greeter and you know how to watch people before they die, would you keep an eye on me? And when it's my time to die, would you be there to greet me? And he said, why, sir, I would be most honored. Just look for
1: the perfect gentleman. So we call that chapter Ray, the perfect gentleman. Yeah, I enjoy that part of the story. So what do you think it is that's how, how? Let me rephrase that. How do the people who contact you through your dreams, how do you think they're chosen? What is it they, about them that, that makes them a candidate, let's say? I I only have a, a clientele, I guess you could
0: say, who died traumatically, violently, suddenly. So shootings, stabbings, drownings, lots of car crashes. Once in a while, a medical emergency that caused their death quickly, but mostly not. Mostly non-natural, sudden violent deaths and once in a while, I'll get people that had some trauma that happened to them during their life that kind of broke their soul, and they might have lived on for years, but only as a kind of a shell of their former self. Once in a while, I'll get that. But most of the time, they've all been through trauma of one kind or another. When they pass, their, uh, their trauma is too large. When you go to funerals, have you ever heard people talk at funerals about what they hope the joys of heaven are. And you're, we're hoping that, that Jack is up there with all of his card buddies or whatever, that people have some idea that there are joys that people are now free to pursue. Not if you're Not if you died suddenly, violently, tragically, and you're a mess. You mm-hmm. might not want that. You might just be angry that you died. So mm. some of them need a kind of a, a team of people to assist them at the front end for a while and help them calm down heal a bit. And then there comes a time when they're, I think of us as the discharge staff at a medical center. Have you ever had to be overnight in a hospital?
1: Thankfully, no. Well, one one time, one time. Yeah. Yeah,
0: I've been very healthy too. But I know that if you've had surgery or whatever, and you have different follow up therapies and medical appointments to meet, and so on, there's maybe a social worker whose job it is to help you get all packed up and ready to leave the hospital and make sure that you understand your medications and follow up detail. I feel like we're like that. They're brought to us and they show up in a dream. I've had some of them. I used to ask often, how did you find me? And I quit asking because I got the same answer just about all the time. One of them was, I don't know, somebody brought me here. One time it was, your light was on. One lady used to shop, catalog shop, from big paper catalogs uh, growing up in the Outback. Did you have to do that?
1: Yes, that was the only way we could get stuff.
0: <laughs> yeah, when I was growing up in the U.S., there were two companies that had really big catalogs, Sears and J.C. Penney. And this lady was from about the 1950s, and she used a catalog shop. And so when it was time for her to make this crossing thing, they said, there's lots of ways that you can do this. Why don't you sit down here with this catalog and page through it and see if there's something that appeals to you? And she turned a page and I was on it. And she said, oh, look here, there's a Catholic priest that does this. I think I'll pick him because I was a Catholic. <laughs> that's what she told me.
1: That makes sense. I have a, a good friend of mine, Nikki Allen, who's a, who's a psychic. And uh, she has had that described in the same way. It's like she she has a, a light and her light's on and that's what brings people towards her. So it it makes perfect sense to me. So I wanted to ask you, Oh, dear, I lost my train of thought there. Oh, that's right. So when you have the dream, how, and given that these are all somewhat traumatic ways that people have died, how do you experience that? Is it like first person, third person? Are you, look, are you detached somehow? How do you... That's a great uh, question,
0: Rod. If you must... You're a podcaster. I imagine you probably are a storyteller, too. Podcast is storytelling. It really depends on the point of view that a storyteller or a writer takes. For example... A lot of the deaths that I've been witness to were in automobiles. Sometimes it's the driver who died, and so they'll have me behind the wheel of the car, and they'll show me a truck that suddenly crosses the center line is about to hit them head on. Other times I might be as though in a helicopter and seeing it from above and watching cars crash into each other almost like they're toys or the size of toys. Mm. Maybe I'll be on the sidewalk next to a thing so it really depends on the way a person tells a story. Once in a while, they'll, especially in the car crashes, what, they're merciful in that they don't make me suffer and they don't terrorize me. They do what they can to make their point without it being too graphic or gory.
1: Hmm.
0: But they help me understand that this is not my experience and it's not a normal dream. I call them a contact dream. I make the distinction between having a dream or receiving a dream. For me, having a dream is my own psychobabble, like the golf game that I was talking about earlier. Receiving a dream is the part where there's violence and circumstances that I've never been in, falling off a cliff or being shot or something like
1: that. And do the dreams themselves, uh, apart from the fact that they're events you've not had any experience with, do they have a a different essence about them as well that makes them distinct from your everyday dreams?
0: They do. They just feel different. I don't know how else to put it. They, and very often they have a little, they can have a perplexing quality because I'm still receiving it. I had one last night and it had, and dreams can be either very short or they can feel like they're very long. And, but yeah, there's a texture to them that, that is somehow foreign. In fact, to me, you're a foreigner. You're at the other end of the globe in Australia and I'm in the United States. Sometimes I get if Most of the time I'm dealing with people who died in the United States but not always, as I'll get an inkling that I'm in Iraq or I'm in South America or something. And, and, and usually that ends up being borne out. I'm, I'm in some place that I've never been, but that the person that's showing me their death
1: died there. Can you tell us about one of those experiences where you've contacted or someone from uh, another country? That has, that has? I can. In,
0: in this... The book that you're reading is the first book of two, and there'll be another one out in that series this
1: fall. It'll be okay. After All Interrupted. Yeah, I think I'm probably about a quarter of the way through.
0: In the second book, there was a man who who showed me a dream of... I I felt like I was a Muslim per, man at prayer in a bunker-like room without windows, and there was machine gun fire. I was with other men, and we needed to decide... You know how the Muslims that they, they pray separated by gender? I didn't know that. They do. The the women uh pray in one place and the men pray in another place. Right. Well, they were in Baghdad during the war and their mosque had been bombed, and they really had no proper imam. Uh some of the elders, he was a businessman, Nadi is his name, uh had to step up and reorganize the the congregation and find an alternative place to pray. They chose a windowless warehouse for security, but the women were across the street in another place when they heard this machine gun fire. So he decided he couldn't bear thinking that his wife and daughters might be endangered, so he went out into the street and saw people bleeding, and he turned to his right and saw a a 10-year-old girl with a machine gun with two men pointing uh, guns at her head forcing her to shoot at him and kill him. And she did. He died because of that. And then we worked with him and he was very sweet. He said, I would never have thought that I would be talking. First of all, he didn't speak English, but that didn't matter. He said, all I'm doing is forming my words and they're coming out in your language. And he said, I would never have thought I would be doing anything like this at all, but it's certainly not with an American, a Christian and a priest. So I was about as other an alien as he could imagine. <laughs> he said, I would never have thought this was going to be my life. But I said, here we are. Let's, let's figure out how to get you where you need to go. And I used to ask them, can you think of anybody? I, I said, You'd, the reason you, you've come to me is your, your team deems you ready to move on to a next afterlife level where you don't need as much health care. Apparently, you've healed to the point where you're ready to take on new adventures and you just need to move from one plane to the next. That's what we facilitate. In the end, for him, I used to ask them, can you think of anyone who loved you, who died before you did, who you know loves you? And would it be okay if we invite them forward? After a while, we didn't even need to ask anymore. People started showing up and... In his case, if you remember uh, a little bit of geography from that region of the world, the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers run through it. And it's called Mesopotamia because it's the land between the two rivers. Uh, He said the part of the world that we lived in would hardly be habitable if it weren't for the two big rivers. And almost everything we did depended upon the rivers. And all of our festivals were somehow linked to the rivers. Uh, He said there'd be different. Instead of having a parade down Main Street, we usually had floats that floated down the river with different holiday themes attached to them. So when it came time for him to cross, a parade of floats started drifting in, and he said, the space that I'm in has, the water's rising, and there's now about a foot of water that I'm wading in, enough that floats can be supported by the water. And in his case, it was a decorated float with his father and other family members on it, And he said, it's time for me to go now. My father's beckoning me to get on his float and we're going to float away. So that's what happened with him. And then he's ended up coming back and helping another Iraqi child who died. I have that happen sometimes where somebody is an alumni of the process and they return and help somebody else.
1: That's fascinating. Have you ever read any of the books by Bruce Mowen?
0: No. How do you spell the last name?
1: It's M-O-H-E-N.
0: M-O-H-E-N.
1: Okay. yeah he's uh, a graduate of the monroe institute which i'm sure you've probably awesome. heard of and that they did some things that were quite similar as people because everybody takes their so i guess their mindset seem they seem to we seem to take it with us so we do we definitely know, and do yeah and that can hold you in a certain place and he especially like you like with you people with traumatic experiences the earthquake the the bombing that was in oklahoma and they would help people move a bit further, and often there would be loved ones who had already passed, and others. And I thought, wow, that's, that must be such a rewarding thing to be to participate in. It really is. I've been. I wasn't public about it until 2018, because
0: I was still a pastor, usually a pastor in a campus church, and many of them were very large congregations and staff. I had about 20, 21 staff members, and all the fundraising and five services every weekend and lots of retreats and service projects I was a really busy guy I was just afraid that if I went public with this it would be too upsetting or jarring I just thought I can continue to do this on the down low (laughs) and there'll come a day maybe when I'll go public with it and and I decided when I was about 60 years old that uh, it was time to do that
1: and what's the general reception been like from people who have learned about this other work that used to be on the down low it's very gratifying. For
0: pe- There are sometimes people who disapprove. Mm. Many people who are disapproving are polite about it and just don't want to hear any more about it. Others, sometimes there are snarky remarks and stuff on the internet. Anybody that has an internet presence is going to get some of that. I should think that you've had your share of that. I don't yeah. know. You really just have to not pay too much attention to that kind of thing. And on the whole, I've been received sometimes it's the my day started this morning with a a catholic man who found my work upsetting he had just learned about it and he wrote me an email but he took the time to lay out his questions and concerns and he did it with with grace but i called him on the phone and we talked for about half an hour and we'll talk again and i get a lot of emails from people that don't just have an academic interest in this topic, but whose child committed suicide or they're grieving their especially drug abuse deaths.
1: I think we probably have it in equal portions to what other countries like in the U S would. Yeah. We have this scourge right now of fentanyl,
0: the illegal drugs that are coming for us. They come up mostly from Mexico, but they're candy colored and they, one pill can kill and, So there's a lot of grief coming from that, and so I end up doing a lot of grief counseling and helping people. I teach them spiritual practices that they can do, and I do some, I don't do long-term counseling. The subtitle of my first book was Helping Stuck Souls Cross Over, and using that metaphor being stuck, I'll say to a person that wants help from me, I'll say, I think of myself as the tow truck driver. I might be able to pull you out of the ditch, but I can't follow you down the road. I'll make one hour long appointment and help a person assess a possible. A lot of times people feel stuck because they've arrived at some certitude. And I'll challenge the certitude and say, what if that's not, what if there's another way to think of it? That if they're willing to shift a bit, sometimes that's all it takes to get unstuck. For one yeah, thing, it's... the idea that you would be in charge. Do, do you have children? I've got four, actually. All right. Sometimes parents who have lost a child, especially one who was depressed or suicided or a, a drug death, sometimes they feel like now they're responsible for their that child in the afterlife. And they panic and feel all stress about, how do I help my deceased son in the afterlife? And so sometimes I have to sit with them and challenge some of that and... and help them stay in the present moment and do the present good. Anyway, I, I end up with a gratifying work to do for for people that a lot of people are searching for some sort of spiritual meaning and they're using the internet as the place to look around, especially during the pandemic. Even people that had houses of worship and communities that they were attached to, many of them were locked because of the pandemic.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. People we're all looking for answers and people are starting to question what they know and accept other things that may, other information, other evidence. I think this is where things like near-death experiences, your own experiences, there's no real way to prove these in a sort of scientific sense, although I think that's also making progress. And But there's this truth, there's this element of truth that something that rings true about it and people are, that's what they need. People just want to have some reassurance that it's not the end. Yes, yeah, so the it, end. It really isn't. And yeah, it it's not about religion. Oh. I
0: believe it's about metaphysics. It's about the kind of thing that we are. I believe that mm. we from the time that we come into existence, we always will be. And uh, do you know IONS, the Inter- International Association for Near-Death Studies?
1: Yeah, many of my guests have a uh, part of that or have spoken at their conferences and whatnot.
0: I'll be speaking. We have one coming up at the end of the month, and we're recording this in August, and it'll be at the end of August and the beginning of September. I'll be speaking there, and there uh, there is a lot of of scientific research, and even on the campus where I live at University of Arizona, there's a lot of research on, especially on mediumship here. Uh, Yeah, double and triple, quadruple blind studies to try to see about the veracity of the medium and the messages they bring through. So I'm hoping that I'm going to be in that milieu more and more as time goes on.
1: Yeah, it's a fascinating area. Somebody once said to me that there's a lot of work that's going on to try and prove things in, a, in an empirical sense of, about the validity of things like mediumship, about what yes. you do and psychics, et cetera. But I think the most important thing is what is the impact of that information on you as a person? Like when I I read your story, that, that sort of further cements the belief that we do go on after our physical death and there is more to our life and we're an eternal being. Like that just cements it even further and gives me more confidence about that. And so the feeling for me is beneficial and positive. I think that's the thing that's most important. Whether or not it can be proven or not, I think is secondary to how does that actually impact your life and you know, whether it's yes, and
0: and God. I'm happy to hear that if that if, if yeah. reading yeah. only a quarter of the way into my first book has had a positive impact on you, good for you. Uh, yeah. And I can also teach people if they if they're frustrated that they wish they had psychic gifts and could talk to their back and forth to their loved ones and so on. I can at least teach them how to send, how to convey a message to their loved ones. That's standard yeah. Catholic praxis. How to think about where they are, because oftentimes people will talk about the man upstairs, or they'll presume that, that God, whatever God is, at a faraway place. And as I told you earlier, my mom taught me, no, it's right in your heart. All you have to hmm. do is all you have to do is cross yourself and say hello in there. Uh, so I can teach people to to at least experiment with some different practices that are common to Catholic Christians. Do you have any? Do you know anybody that does yoga?
1: Yeah, well, I used to admit for many years myself, but yeah, love, All right. it's very clear in Sydney especially.
0: Yeah, sure. And the next thing I ask is, do they want to become Hindus?
1: <laughs> no. Usually not. <laughs> not that I know. Of. yeah,
0: They're just borrowing a practice from one of the great world religious traditions because it looks beneficial. And yeah. so I feel like I can be that Catholic priest that's not trying to turn you into a Catholic, but I can say to you, if you want to borrow a practice from this tradition, I can teach you uh, about how to do it. And, and yeah. we have a, a lot of different practices and tools that I think are helpful in uh, dealing with life, death, afterlife, uh, and being connected to loved ones that preceded us, ones that we knew in this life and ones that lived long ago. The saints. Right? I have lots of saint friends. I'm talking with them all the time. I'm hardly ever alone.
1: Yeah, I, I like this idea. This is often, I, I don't know very much about the saints, but I'm learning. And oh, sorry, I'm, I was actually thinking of archangels just then. As, as mm-hmm. well, like Archangel Michael, but the Saints yeah. is something fairly new. After, as I've started to learn from reading your book, so now that's a another area of explanation exploration that that I'd like to learn more about.
0: If I can help, let me know. <laughs> I feel like that's really my strong suit. I have great; they're all delightful. The Saints are all all human persons who have died and lived on, and many times in the Catholic Church some saint will be the patron of architecture or the patron of gardening or something. And it's usually because they loved that thing in their human lifetime on the earth. And they, because they loved it, they don't need to give it up. They just take it to the next level somehow.
1: Yeah, I see. So if if people do want to learn more about what you do, Father Nathan, or, or get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that?
0: Through my website, which is Nathan, N-A-T-H-A-N, nathan castle dot com. nathan C-A-S-T-L-E.com, Nathan-Castle.com. There's a, and the thing I don't do, or a couple of things that I don't do, I don't do demons. Sometimes people immediately associate Catholic priests and spirituality with exorcism, and uh-huh. that's not my gift. I don't do that, nor do I deliver messages from deceased loved ones. I would discourage people from saying, would you please let me know how my grandmother's doing? I wouldn't do that. But I'd be happy to listen to whatever their concerns are, and and then you and I are talking via technology all the way across the Pacific. It's not yeah, hard to set up. Many a Zoom call. I was. yeah, mm. yes, and many times, and different day, isn't it a different day?
1: It is, yes, it's Friday yeah. here.
0: In fact, uh, you have you were patient with me in just setting up this call because it took us a few tries just to agree upon what what day and what time. But I'd be happy to to do whatever I could to help. The thing that I ask people to do first is if they're really interested in what they've heard, buy and read the first book. Yeah. please don't ask yeah. me to explain things that I've already explained in detail in a book that's not very expensive yes. and that you could order yeah. from an Amazon and have the day after tomorrow.
1: Yeah, and it's a good <laughs> exactly. read. I ordered, just ordered the Kindle version, so it's I got it instantly.
0: Yes, and we also have all three, all three of my books are on audible.com. They're all… Yes audiobooks if people prefer to do that. A lot of people do that while they're exercising or commuting.
1: Yeah, I'll put all those in the show notes. And is there any final message that you'd like to leave people with before we wrap up our conversation today?
0: I also have a podcast. My podcast is coming up on a year old. It's called The Joyful Friar, F-R-I-A-R. Dominic, St. Dominic, the founder of our order, that was his nickname. And I've just borrowed it to for my show. But you can find the Joe Phil Fryer wherever you get your podcasts. And I would just encourage people to, to keep exploring in that direction and trust that, that they're really not only a temporary being. You're, we're both temporary and permanent at the same time in different ways. There's a, a part of you that will die, and the essence of you will live on. It's just the way the universe is built.
1: Father Nathan, thank you for that message. I appreciate you, and thank you for coming on the show today.
0: All right. God bless you.